You know, most kings do anything they can, or most kingdoms, I should say, do anything they can to protect their king. This is the premise of the game of chess, you right? When the king is captured, the game is lost. When the king falls, the kingdom is lost. Therefore, the king must be protected at all costs. A great example comes from the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day on June 6, 1944. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill desperately wanted to join the expeditionary forces and watch the invasion from the bridge of a battleship in the English Channel. U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was desperate to stop him for fear that the Prime Minister might be killed in battle. When it became apparent that Churchill will not be dissuaded, Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority, King George VI. The king went and told Churchill that if it was the prime minister's duty to witness the invasion, he could only conclude that it was also his duty as king to join him on the battleship. At this point, Churchill reluctantly agreed to back down, for he knew he could never expose the king of England to such danger. But, as is often true about our king, Christ, King Jesus, he did exactly the opposite of that. With royal courage, he willingly surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life, for the life of his people. King Jesus died for all the wrong things that we had ever done and ever would do, completely atoning, for our sins, the crown of thorns that was meant to be a mockery of his royal claim actually proclaimed the truth with kingly dignity in the crucifixion of our king. When this king fell, a kingdom was won. When this king rose again, a new kingdom was reborn. See, our king won, and he won not just by defeating the enemy because of his overwhelming power. He defeated them with his overwhelming love. It's love that won. It's love that saved us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, read verses 1 through 11, as I read about God's amazing love and about our King's eternity-altering love. Romans 5, 1 through 11. The scripture says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his love. More than that, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, now we come with a simple prayer that your word would come alive, would jump off those pages, your Holy Spirit empowered and errant word, then would be used by you, Spirit, to challenge us and to change us and to teach us so that we might leave here this day having worshipped our Savior and being more conformed to his likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at all the benefits we have in Christ, all the benefits we have because of Christ, here in this beginning of Romans chapter 5. We forget not all of his benefits. But now I think we come to one of the greatest benefits of all on the list, if you could rank them at all. We come to love. God's love. God loves you, and he proved it. Because we've been justified by faith, verse 5 says, we have the love of God poured into our hearts. And verse 8 says, we have the love of God for us proven through the substitutionary death of his son. Today we're going to see two aspects of God's love. It's subjective reality in our hearts, and it's objective reality saving our hearts. So let's look at verse 5. How do we know that absolute surety of hope in God? We know it, the scripture says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The reality of God's love in a believer's heart gives us assurance in our hope, even a guarantee in our hope that our hope in God, the promise of his glory, is not misplaced. It will not fail. One wrote, what is the ultimate ground on which our Christian hope rests, our hope and glory? It's the steadfast love of God. The reason our hope will never let us down is that God will never let us down. His love will never give up on us. At the end of Romans 8, it says nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. What's the glue that holds our hope together? The steadfast love of God. What's the concrete that makes our faith so strong? The steadfast love of God. What's the rock that makes our joy unconquerable? The steadfast love of God. To have such a surety in God's love brings rich and amazing blessings into our lives. Well, how in verse 5 is love described as coming into our hearts? It's described as being poured in. 
The picture here is not of a, of a careful pouring, like a waitress refilling your water glass at a restaurant. No, this word carries the picture of a lavish pouring, a gushing, an overflowing, even a flood. God's love for us is not measured in drizzle, but in the downpouring torrents of the rain. It's not measured in meandering creeks, but in mighty, raging rivers. It's not measured in little ponds, but in the vastness of the great oceans. God's love for us overflows. God's love for us runs over. It floods our hearts. Remember, heart in the Bible is not just the seat of one's emotions. That's how we often just use the word heart in our culture. No, heart in the Bible is the very center of our being. It is our motivation. It is our purpose. One's heart in the Bible encompasses our emotions, but also our wills and our thinking. The heart in the Bible is the core, the essence of our being. Therefore, verse 5 is telling us that God's love lavishly overflows into the very core of our being. That God's love is overabundantly being poured out into the very purposes of our lives. Well, when does that happen and how does that happen? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 is Paul's first mention of love. In this letter, it's also the first mention of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. You see, love and the Holy Spirit are connected together. What's the very first quality mentioned in Galatians 5? The very first fruit in that line of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is it? Love. Love. See, love and the Holy Spirit are connected together. You see, love and the Holy Spirit, he develops within us our love for God. Because he first lavished within our hearts God's love. See, our love for God is a response. It's a reaction. It's a result of God first flooding our hearts with his love through the Holy Spirit. We love God, why? Because he first Loved us. The Greek verb tenses in verse 5 are very helpful. It says God's love has been poured. That's the perfect tense. The perfect tense in the Greek has, a, has an idea of a completed action in the past, but with continuing results in the present. The action was completed at some time in the past, but the results continue up and through the present day. There's a point in our lives of every believer when they go from not having God's love in their hearts to having it overflowing in their hearts into a continuous flooding effect throughout our lives. Later in verse 5, it tells us when that happens. It was when the Holy Spirit was given to us. This is just the simple past, past tense. At a particular point in time, The Holy Spirit was given to us in totality at one point. There's a moment in the life of every believer when we go from not having the Holy Spirit to having the Holy Spirit indwelling and sealing us forever as children of God. That moment was at our salvation 
That moment was at our justification, at our confession of Christ, at our trust in him, at our belief in him. So we see a progression of three things here. First, the Holy Spirit is God's gift to all believers as a consequence of our justification. As part of the amazing package of benefits we received at the moment of our salvation, at the moment of our justification, since we have been justified by faith, we have the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. It is not possible to be justified by faith without at the same time, at that same moment, being regenerated and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, that leads to the second point. At the particular moment of our conversion, as the Holy Spirit is doing his work, bringing us to salvation, he takes up permanent residence within our lives. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Romans 8, 9 says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit is a gift to all believers. And the Holy Spirit is indwells, takes up permanent residence within believers from that moment of salvation onward. Now, thirdly, with the Holy Spirit now in us, he then pours out into our hearts the love of God in such a way that that initial pouring becomes a permanent, ongoing flood. So think about this. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to you is to flood your heart with God's love. So why does the Holy Spirit do that? So he can repeatedly make us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. Over and over and over again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to remind us that God loves us. How awesome is that, right? Think about that. It's like Valentine's Day every day with God. Through the Holy Spirit, God wants us to know in our hearts, in the very core, the very center, purpose, meaning of our being, he wants us to know that he loves us. One of the specific works of the Holy Spirit is to remind us, to refresh us, to renew within us the truth that God loves us. God loves you so much that he wants to remind you every day of his love for you. This same truth is taught in a slightly different way by Paul in Romans 8.16, where it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Just as the Spirit reminds us of God's love for us, so also the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that God is our Father, that we're a child of of God. Well, every child who is loved by his father has no doubt in the father's love. It's not up for question. No, the, the child lies secure and accepted and safe in their father's love. How can you be assured in your relationship with God? Love. His love for you. His love poured into your heart. His love accepting you as a child into his family as your father. 
Tune your ears. Open the eyes of your heart to hear the message of God saying over and over again to you, the Holy Spirit pouring into your heart God's message. I love you. Folks, God wants you to know in the very core and essence of your being, in your thoughts, in your soul, that he loves you. Paul says it here in Ephesians 3, 14 through 18. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of his love, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, may we today, being rooted and grounded in the love of God, have the strength to grasp how wide and how high and how long and how deep is the love of Christ for us, for you. May we grasp it. The experiential, subjective reality of God's love floods our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Listen and receive the truth. God loves you. Maybe today you just need to stop and reflect on God's amazing, overflowing, wonderfully abundant love for you. Now in our passage, we see, we see God presenting this in another way, in a, a second way, in a, an objective way, in a way that he wants to assure us of his love. God says, I love you, and now God says, I proved it. Verses 6 through 8 are a unit. They're conveying one main idea. God proved his love for us in Christ's death on the cross. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 2, 20. The son of God loved me and gave himself me. God's love for us is the very essence of the gospel. It is the very crux of God's motivation for sending his son to die on the cross for our sins because he loves us. Verses 6 through 8 form a single argument that proves the amazing love of God. The first point in Paul's argument is that human love at its very best might, on the rarest of occasions, be motivated to die for someone else. Almost always those stories are about a family member or a military buddy. They're powerful and moving stories. And almost always there's a good reason to die for the other person. But that's not the story that we're given here in the scriptures. No, Christ hasn't come. To die for a righteous person, maybe somebody might. Christ hasn't done to die for a good person, maybe somebody might. No, that brings us to point two. Who did Christ come to die for? 
Christ died for the powerless and the weak and the rebellious sinners, even those opposed to him, his enemies. So thus the conclusion follows, that since Jesus loved the very worst, in their worst, at their worst, it proves that God's love is so far greater in its magnitude and in its depth than even the greatest human love possible. One commentary illustrated it this way. The degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or the unworthiness of the beneficiary. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything as very self to those who deserved nothing from him except judgment. Everything for nothing. And we must add that Jesus not only gave everything for us, but he took on himself our very sins. He didn't just die for us. He became our sin offering, bearing God's just wrath of our sins, taking the eternal penalty of our sins. And not only that, not only did he take what wasn't his, but then he gave to us what we could never earn. He gave us his righteousness. He gave us his righteous standing for God so that we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Everything for nothing, sinless for sin, perfection for penalty, righteous for unrighteousness, love for sinners, Jesus for us. See, Jesus on the cross is the most ultimate expression of God's love and forever proves beyond a shadow of any doubt that he loves you. Salvation is never about our love for him. It's always about God's love for us. Beloved, can you grasp the depth of God's love for us? God proactively gave his one and only son to die in our place, even when we were yet sinners, even when we were enemies, even when we were spiritually dead and lifeless and weak, when we had nothing to offer. He offered up everything, his very own son. When we had nothing to give, he gave everything himself. The cross is the objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. Objectively in history, subjectively in experience, God has given us undeniable proof of his love for us. You know, just a simple emotional feeling of God's love in and of itself is actually little comfort to a person who's lost and condemned to hell. 
and a cold, fact-based understanding of history that God loved the world on the cross is of little benefit until that love is received by faith in Christ. It's only when both of these are properly experienced together as two aspects of God's great love that true heartfelt confession and true will-changing repentance happens. The integration of God the Son's love for us on the cross and God the Holy Spirit pouring God the Father's love into our hearts, that's when love changes everything. One wrote, it's unnatural to think that one person would volunteer to die for another, even if that person was a, a good or righteous person. But who would die for their enemy? At the time when we were still powerless to help ourselves, strapped to the executioner's block, guilty as charged, about to die, Jesus Christ stepped forward and took the place of us, his enemies. In a godless culture, what's love got to do with it is a valid question, he wrote. But in God's world, in Paul's day and in ours, love has everything to do with it. The Holy Spirit tells us continually of God's love for us and points our thinking back to the space-time reality of that love, the day Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for his enemies. The Holy Spirit is continually telling us of God's love for us. He's continually pointing us back to the fact, the space-time event that happened in reality that proves to us the love of God the day that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on the cross for us. It's objective. It's true. It's fact. It's real. Of all the doubts and challenges we have in this world, I hereby officially revoke and forever remove upon the surety of God's word any and all doubt that God loves you. He proved it. God loves you. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? What more could he do? than what he has already done to prove beyond any doubt you are loved. Well, next we see in verses 9 and 10, the next benefit is the assurance of our complete salvation. So Paul puts these together very interestingly as a parallel summary statements, making similar points. So I put together this little uh, chart here to kind of help for you to... See to try to put together how Paul has arranged these two verses, how they parallel each other. See, Paul in both verses goes from the major point to the minor point, from the greater to the lesser. And Paul in both verses goes from having been saved, past tense, to will be saved, future tense. So since God has already done the more difficult thing, justifying and reconciling unworthy sinners to himself, how much more will he then be able to accomplish the easier thing? Being saved from God's end-time wrath and 
sharing in the resurrection life of Jesus. If anyone ever asks you, have you been saved, here's your answer. Did you know that the best way to answer that question is yes and no? For yes, I've been saved through Christ from the guilt and the penalty of my sin. Yes, I've been saved, but no. But no, I have yet to be saved from the presence of sin. I have yet to gain the glorified body in Jesus Christ. Have you been saved? Yes. Will you be saved? Yes. Look at the breakdown of these two verses. Verse 9 uses a salvation term, justified. It's a legal term. Having been declared innocent by God. Verse 10 uses a salvation term, reconciled. It's a relational term. Having been given peace, a reconciled relationship with God. Both are different aspects of our one and glorious salvation. Both verses then point directly to the cross by the means by which one has been justified, by the means by which one has been reconciled. It's the cross. Verse 9 says, by his blood. Verse 10 says, by the death of his son. There is no salvation. None without the cross, without the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. Both then pivot on the same phrase. Much more, it says. Much more pointing then to the future of our completed salvation in Christ. And then they conclude, verse 9, points to the negative of what our future completed salvation will save us from, God's end time wrath. And verse 10 then points to the positive of what we will be saved to, life, to Christ's resurrected life. Both verses are teaching us and assuring us that since God was able to do the greater thing, the harder thing, saving us from our sins through his son's death on the cross, we can have complete confidence that he can do the lesser thing, the easier thing of completing our salvation. Brings to mind Philippians 1.6, does it not? Where the scripture says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. One summarizes these two verses like this. If God has accomplished our justification at the cost of Christ's blood, much more will he save his justified people from his wrath. And again, if he reconciled us to himself when we were his enemies, much more will he finish our salvation now that we are reconciled, friends. Folks, we have been saved. And because of that fact, we can have the confident assurance that we will be completely saved. You see, not only did Jesus deliver us from sin and its punishment and its judgment, but he also delivers us from the uncertainty and doubt that we can know for sure the sure completion of our salvation, our deliverance. God started it, right? And what God starts, he completes. Verse 11 then ends this section with another more than that. After listing all these great benefits, Paul concludes this this passage with more than that, along with all these superlative blessings we have in Christ We have one more, rejoicing in God. 
This word rejoice is the same word he used in verse 2 and in verse 3. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in God. Remember this word rejoice isn't the typical word for rejoice. Its root word is that word for boast. It can be translated, we boast in our God. We exalt in our God. We glory in our God. This word rejoice carries with it the idea of the full expression of two simultaneous thoughts. Both confidence and joy all mixed together in one word. That's why it's translated in varying ways like boast and exalt and glory and rejoice. For we as Christians can say we confidently rejoice in God. We joyfully boast in God. We delight to glory in God. Is that you? Does that describe you? Do you rejoice in God? Do you boast in God? Do you exalt in God? Do you glory in your God? Is part of the heartbeat of your life joyfully rejoicing in God? Does your soul radiate with these verses from Psalms? I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. My mouth is filled with your praise. And with your glory all the day. Is that you? Rejoicing in God? Is that us? One of the things that should mark our lives, that should repeatedly come out of our mouths, that should be the song of our soul, is rejoicing in God. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, for today is our day to rejoice in the Lord, for today is our day to remember all of his benefits. Well, now specifically from verse 11, how, how do we rejoice in God? Look at the verse. It says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our joyful confidence is God is not about us at all. It's because of Jesus. We exalt in God because of Jesus. It's never about us, and it's always about Jesus. And what specific reason is given for the joyful exalting in God through our Lord Jesus Christ? We rejoice because we've received reconciliation. Our sin-broken relationship with God has been reconciled through Christ. Oh, folks, we're no longer enemies. We're no longer opposed to God. Jesus is our peace. What we could not do because of our spiritual death and inability, Christ did. What we could not do because of our ungodliness, 
Jesus did. What we could not do because we are sinners, Christ did. And so now the passage comes full circle. Do you see it? The passage ends as it began. Verse 11 connects us right back to verse 1. That first great benefit is the last great rejoicing. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Since we've been justified by faith, we rejoice in our reconciled relationship with God. Oh, the benefits. The benefits we have. Peace with God. Continual access to God. Forever standing in his grace. Rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in the fact that God has purpose in our suffering. We know that God loves us. For his love is being poured out abundantly into our hearts through through the Holy Spirit. We know that God loves us because he proved it forever through the sacrificial death of his son. We have the complete assurance of our complete salvation. Being confident that our Jesus who began a good work in us, he will bring it to completion. And we rejoice We rejoice in our God because of Jesus, for we have a reconciled relationship with God. Benefits. Beloved, rejoice today. Rejoice today and remember the great benefits. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you so thankful for this positive word of truth into our lives. There's so much negative. There's so much negative in our world. There's so much negative and challenges in our lives. Lord, you have just refreshingly dumped upon us through the power of your word benefits that are so positive that it's almost beyond earthly description. Your peace, your love, your grace, your hope, and most of all, You, rejoicing in you because of Jesus. Lord, help us today to be rejoicers. Help us today to see the benefits and to overflow with a heart that is overflowing with love and overflow it right back to you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.